This is Peak Earth. I'm Case Bradford. Thanks for tuning in to this episode with Anthony Manuel. Anthony's a great guy. He's very energetic and enthusiastic and has a ton of deep and interesting knowledge to share. He's got a podcast called The Art of Move, The Art of Fuel, those about movement and nutrition. And I really enjoyed this conversation. For example, we talk about the foot and how it's a sensory organ operating with mechanotransduction and the piezoelectric effect. Amazing stuff. Anthony was 286 pounds when he was 15. Now he's fit and shredded. He's also a, a creator. He makes a lot of great videos online and recently had a reel go super viral. Got six and a half million views. We discussed that experience and also the beauty of, of Banff, Canada, where he currently resides. If you're enjoying Peak Earth, came up with a few ideas of ways that you could contribute if you wanted. You could go door to door in your local neighborhood and sell people on downloading episodes of the podcast, subscribing to the show, and you could even sit there and listen to a few episodes <laughs> with them if you wanted to do that. Uh, that would be pretty cool. Um, another idea could be something along the lines of, of a crop circle. Just find a large field, corn or grains, any, any, any sort of monocrop agriculture that would be conducive to a large, a massive crop circle in the shape of the Peak Earth logo. I think that would likely um, help support the show. And lastly, if you'd like to leave a five star review on the Spotify or Apple app, those, those tend to help, I think. Um, at least it gives me some good vibes, really warms my gizzards. Don't have to do any of that. Of course, I appreciate you tuning in and I hope you enjoy this episode with Anthony Emmanuel. How's it going? So good, man. How are you? Excellent. Glad to be with you. We were just chopping up a little bit before this. We've been connected online for a while and how vibing with each other's you know creativity and have been trying to get this podcast together for a few months i feel like and finally finally we're here we made it happen i know this is the second reschedule i think but uh i'm kind of happy to be like home to be doing this and like a little more grounded and a little less chaotic i was i was ripping through mexico for the last month and i was still doing podcasts but it's like it's way nicer to be at home producing and having these conversations you feel a little more centered to connect with someone Absolutely. And what were what you doing down in Mexico? Was that mostly just for fun, for travel? Yeah, honestly, I just wanted to escape the winter. Um, it's very, very cold where I live in Canada and I needed some sun. I get pretty hardcore seasonal depression, even if I try to emulate as many natural things as I can with like the red light therapies and, you know, like get outside a little bit so I get some natural light in my eye, my eyes. But I mean, there's something, there's something really, really tough about like having to basically hide indoors for, uh, to, to brave the elements essentially. And, uh, yeah, so, so Mexico, you know, I, I work from my computer, I'm, I work in marketing and it's just very easy for me to, uh, pack up and go wherever I need to go and keep the, keep the machine working, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Growing up in New Hampshire, I 100% know exactly what you're talking about, the seasonal, the winter blues, you know, it, it's, it's just like effects at a deep level. I, I have this theory about the entire, cause I, I was growing up, I was looking at not to take this too deep, too early, but I was <laughs> thinking about like just the Caucasian race in general, how we were sort of shaped by winter and how that must have changed this, you know, Northern Europeans, the, the Caucasians, how did that shape like who they are today. Cause you look and like, well, this is this kind of, these people are kind of crazy. Like they're going out on boats, just like conquering all these lands. And like, my theory is that winter sort of changed them at like a deep genetic fundamental level and, and turn them into these like kind of crazy, crazy people that we are today. It's like, I don't know what, what you make of that, but that's, that's something that I was, I was thinking about the other day. Well, it's uh, so I just had an interview with a guy named Dr. Anthony Chafee. He's a big carnivore diet proponent and we were kind of talking about like fossil records of early human ancestors. And he was like, because we were kind of talking, we were arguing about, not arguing, I was, I was bringing up these hypothetical arguments against the carnivore diet, like human beings like naturally seek sweet foods 
we, you know, like everyone is obsessed with fruit and honey and all these things. So we, we naturally were sweetness seeking. And he's like, well, if you look at the fossil records, you would kind of assume that during the ice age, everyone would kind of start to flee towards the, you know, the, the hemisphere, uh, the equator, sorry, the, the hemisphere, the equator, um, where it's warmer and where there's more fruit. But if you look at the fossil records, it's the opposite during the ice age, they all migrated towards the cold. Cause that's where all the megafauna were. And they were all, so, you know, it was like an interesting thing. They were seeking these, like just chasing these animals into these cold wastelands, figuring out ways to keep warm just so that they could eat the grub that they wanted to eat. But, uh, you know, hu humans are incredibly adaptable creatures and you, you kind of have to wonder how culturally it would affect, a, you know, like a, a society to have to adapt to such harsh climates. That's fascinating thinking about our ancestors trudging north, chasing these giant mastodons, woolly mammoths with, you know, tribes and spears and they're figuring out how to make fur coats and surviving the winter, how to preserve meat. It does force you to sort of challenge your mind to plan more, to, to say, oh, the winter's coming where I need to figure out a way to like keep food because there won't be as much around in the winter time versus somewhere equatorial where oh, there's just fruit growing on the trees and you just go pick it and there it is. And it's all kind of available. It, it is, I've always been fascinated by, by thinking about deep time and, and wild homo sapiens, how they must have lived to, to get us to the point where we're at today because we're so disconnected from that. And a lot of us are suffering the consequences of that. And we're looking for ways to kind of reconnect, to find an energy and a vitality that is only found in the roots of our species. So it's, it's this amazing way of, of perceiving the world and such a fascinating fantasy that you can kind of play out in your mind to think about deep time and our ancestors. Well, and I think the things that we are disconnected from go even deeper than people even consider. Like most people think, oh, it's like the nutrition thing. Uh, well, what about like the synthetic materials of our clothes and how that's been showing, you know, to have endocrine disrupting effects or the fact that you have you know, like the whole grounding principle, you know, you get to be barefoot on the beach all the time to get this like sort of grounding energy. And that actually has like a bioelectrical impact on our bodies, literally a bioelectrical impact on our bodies. The sunlight, obviously we're indoors all the time. What does an overhead light, an LED do to our, to our circadian rhythm? Like there's so much that we, uh, or, or actually, even this this is this is one that I was thinking about recently. Wearing shoes affects your uh, mechanotransduction in terms of how your foot hits the ground. There's this idea that Naudi Aguilar, the founder of Functional Patterns, was talking about recently, called the piezoelectric effect. That when you take a step, there's this sort of shock wave that goes all the way up from your down from your foot all the way up to your cranium, assuming that your fascial chain is connected properly and can actually have that transference of energy and that like sort of uh, kinetic energy can literally be used by your body as, as available energy to, to like exist as a human being. Wow. And so, you know, like when you don't have proper biomechanics in your gait cycle, or you have these like super squishy padded Hoka shoes <laughs> and you're absorbing this stuff, you don't have that piezoelectric effect. You're effectively robbing yourself of natural mechanotransduction available energy, which is like, whoa. <laughs> so we're, we're more disconnected in, in ways than we even consider. I guess like the food thing, people think, oh, we're not eating our natural diet, but the, it goes so much deeper than that because of how interconnected with our, our environment as, as animals, we would, we would be essentially. That is, that is mind blowing. And it's sparking this idea I have where we're sharing these ideas on the internet. So someone who's new to this will come across someone who's talking about, okay, you need the electromagnetic energy of earthing and the mechanical transduction of your foot on the earth to like transfer the energy. You combine those together and you've got this like super advanced, like really kind of a high level tactic. You're just like, whoa, this is way too out there and far out for me. Like these guys are crazy, but it's like, well, there's this sort of general, I guess, almost a, a progress of optimization as you make your way up the curve. It's like, okay, so I've, I've removed, you know, the seed oils and the processed grains and a lot of the refined sugars or however you want to approach that, but removing a lot of like the industrial junk food from my diet. Now it's like, oh, I'm a little bit more, you know, optimized. Now I feel like a completely different person. What else can I do? And then it's like, well, 
um, polyester, synthetic fibers, maybe not contributing to your vitality and, and walking, you know, in these cushioned heels, like you mentioned, that may not be contributing, you know, to your vitality and you keep progressing up this scale and eventually you get into this advanced realm of like really ratcheting up the optimization to get these like extra juice out of life. And it, it is so cool to think that we're just continuing to learn more and more about this way that we can reintegrate into nature and harness her power to, to align more with, with the power of nature and, and become greater beings as a result of it. Well, and how funny is it this idea of, of optimization is literally just peeling back all the things that don't align us to natural law. <laughs> it's like, we're trying, like, I, I remember the term biohacking when it was really popular and it was like, we're going to take our biology and we're going to exploit the loopholes of our biology to optimize and maximize and take this supplement to create this effect. And it's like our systems are so much smarter than we, than, than we give them credit for. And they're so balanced in a particular way that like the best biohack is to bioharmonize. It's literally just to fall in line with your, your natural existence. And so, so it's, it's funny because people go through these curves, right? It's like you do, you do the cutting away thing. Like you mentioned the seed oils, the processed garbage and all that stuff. Maybe you change your lights and you have like, you know, some like softer lights instead of the harsh white and blue lights in the, around your house and you're, you know, you're careful about blue light use and whatever it happens to be. But like you start to realize it's like, I'm literally just returning to my, like my, my animal state, basically. I'm just respecting the fact that I'm a part of nature and that's going to be what makes me the healthiest. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that idea on its face is so difficult to serve straight up. It's almost this thing where you've got to kind of hit it with these, you know, these back angles like, oh, biohacking are just little pieces and parts, but it's something once you experience, it really is an amazing transformation. Almost like you think about the pig as a species when it's let outside to roam in a wild environment, it literally goes through changes. It grows tusks, it grows hair, it becomes a wild hog in a matter of weeks. It completely transforms like a dang Pokemon. <laughs> and we go through these similar things as, as homo sapiens. Like we, we don't grow horns or tusks, but we do feel completely different. And my, I changed completely. My entire body mind really transformed. You can look at a picture of me from five, six years ago, and it looks like a completely different man, even though I was already in my, my mid twenties when I began that journey of sort of integrating deeper into this alignment with nature. And I'm curious how you got onto this path and, and what, what has been your sort of journey with it to take, to take a step back and to sort of just look at, at your life and your story. Well, I was really fat as a kid, man. Like when I was uh, 15, I hit a, a pretty fortuitous weight of 287 pounds. I was like very, very overweight and uh, struggled with a bunch of eating disorders and stuff. And I just like, I was, I was not in a good place. I'm, I'm like oversimplifying my story for the sake of brevity here. One day my brother starts chugging these protein shakes and he starts doing push-ups in the house and he's like doing all these things because he had the opposite problem. I was like way too big. He was having a hard time putting any size on his frame. So he's doing all this stuff and he's like working out all the time and he starts to feel really good and like have a lot more confidence. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? So he's like, here, check this out. I found this website. I think you'll really like it. He shows me tnation.com, testosterone nation, which is this website of very hyper-masculine, aggressive men yelling at you, telling you to get your shit together and stop being a little bitch. You got to eat good food and you got to work out because you're the only one responsible for your results, bro. Like go fucking pump some iron. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go pump some iron. So I started working out and I was like, this is awesome. You mean that my decisions and my behaviors can actually affect the outcomes of my own life. And that sent me down this whole path of being really, really obsessed with health and fitness. Cause it was like, it was starting to transform my body, transform my mind, gave me a lot more confidence. I ended up dropping out of university in my second year. Cause I was spending more time basically researching nutrition and exercise and all this stuff. And I became a personal trainer. And then while I was a personal trainer, I, like the obsession didn't stop. It just got deeper because now I was not just responsible for myself, but I was responsible for other people too. And I think uh, ultimately it was like, I always just wanted to get the best results for myself and my clients. 
and so I was always looking for, cause I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to give people bad advice and hurt them. Ultimately, it was like, there was this fear of like, I'm responsible for these other people now. Like this isn't a game. Like I can screw myself up. No problem. I'll, I'll do some crazy experiments on myself. And I did like, you know, I did like the Tim Ferriss four hour body, like eat low carb and then have these like binge level cheat days where I'm eating like a gallon of ice cream and an extra large pizza. And then like basically just eating burgers all week <laughs> and like, uh, you know, the carb backloading thing. And like, I tried, I tried every diet that I could experiment with, but I'm like, I'm not using my clients as guinea pigs. I'm going to get the best information. And so I'm, I'm researching as much as I can. And over time, you know, all roads lead to the same thing. It's like when it, when you boil down to it, it's like, you kind of get to this idea of like, well, there is uh, a blueprint for how a human being is supposed to exist in harmony with nature. And that's how we should inform our decisions about how we train, how we eat, uh, how we live. And those are, you know, like, that's like the most condensed version of my story that I could possibly, you know, like the, it was basically, I was really fat. I started working out, I became a personal trainer and I was like really obsessive about it. And that was like my, my journey to looking at things and for things in particular. And if you look hard and long enough, I think that's the conclusion that everyone gets to is that the human being is an organism that is fundamentally a part of a system on earth. You know, this is the, the system of earth and the further away you get from that system, the worse the outcomes are going to be. Yeah, it is. It is a deep and, and profound understanding that we're almost in a race to spread the awareness of or the understanding of, because the misalignment with that truth has really catalyzed enormous disease that has just run rampant throughout our species. And I commend you for spreading this message and. You, we, we mentioned a bit before your podcast, it's called the art of the move. And, and how long have you been doing that? What is, what has your experience been like creating the podcast and sharing on social media, using everything that you learned through the journey of becoming someone who weighed 286 pounds as a 15 year old to becoming a, a personal trainer to now sharing everything that your wisdom, your powerful wisdom through the internet. What is, what has that been like? So yeah, man, I have two podcasts right now. I have the art of move and then I have the art of fuel, which is like, like a relatively newer nutrition podcast. Um, cause there's some overlap there. Right. And I had so many people asking nutrition questions, but the art of move is mostly about biomechanics and functional fitness. And then the philosophy of science, a little bit of epistemology and things of that nature. Cause we're, we're trying to find the truth of human movement. So we can't help it delve into some of those philosophical territories. But, uh, you know, my friend, Dr. William Raybar and I started that, uh, it'll be two years in August. Um, but I, I started getting into some of this conversation with him. He just lives in the next town over. He's like 15 minutes. He's actually a real friend, not my, uh, <laughs> not my, uh, internet friends that, that I've made so many of in the last couple of years. But uh, him and I started having these conversations about the first principles of human movement and biomechanics after, during a particularly intense CrossFit workout, I tore my shoulder labrum during uh, doing a, an overhead squat or a snatch. And that like devastated me because I was obsessed with CrossFit. I loved it. I thought it was super fun. I thought it was super cool. But I ultimately just kept injuring myself over and over and over again. And that, that wasn't like an isolated incident. It just happened to be the worst one that required surgery. Like over the years I'd herniated discs and like blown my back out and pulled things in my hips from squatting. And like, I'd done a ton of weightlifting. Um, cause that was part of my path to losing all this weight, right? Like that was sort of like I had power lifted after I lost a bunch of weight and I was like gaining all this confidence and I was using all this knowledge to sort of build this personality of the fit guy, the guy who knew everything about fitness and nutrition. Right. And so I almost had like a, a mini identity crisis where I, like I snapped this thing in my shoulder and I spent like a year trying to rehab it on my own and I couldn't, you know, I was doing things like, um, uh, I, I did a certification program with Lucas Aaron, who's a guy on Instagram called range of strength, which was really cool. 
uh, you know, like strength and flexibility. You know, I was able to do a pancake split with my head on the ground and squat 400 pounds, like five seconds later. Right. Cool stuff. Right. Like that, that's kind of fun, but it wasn't really the thing that I was looking for. So, you know, I kept having issues with my shoulder. I couldn't rehab it. Finally realized I was going to get surgery. And so I hit up Dr. Will and I'm like, dude, I got this shoulder problem. Uh, I know you're a wizard with this stuff. Can we talk about it? Can I talk about some rehab options with you? Cause I don't trust these physios. I don't trust what these like mainstream doctors are going to tell me. Cause it's always the same fucking pull the band apart, bro. Like it's fine. Um, so him and I started talking and we got into really deep conversations about the, the first principles of how the human body is supposed to move at all. And, you know, if you're talking about the adherence to the idea of the human organism as existing within nature and adapting to its natural environment as bipedal, like walking on two legged creatures, our first principles of movement are a supportive standing posture, walking for long distances like I am now, running and throwing. Like compared to other great apes, our shoulder structure allows us to throw a lot better than say a chimpanzee, right? And so these are the first principles and like none of our training <laughs> orients around optimizing the mechanics for that whatsoever. In fact, most of our training orients around creating really negative movement compensations that disorganize our bodies and make us less efficient at these behavior patterns that are inherent to our structure. And so this was like a mind blowing moment for me. Will and I started getting really deep into the conversations. I'm like, dude, let's start a podcast about this. I, I was at the time I was involved with this live streaming company. I was helping them do marketing uh, for a company called no filter network. And they needed some use cases. I'm like, Hey, I'll start a podcast with my friend. You know, we'll see how it goes. Didn't really expect it to, to go anywhere, but we started covering these really fringe sort of movement practice. These like really fringe ideas from companies like Goda, which is like the greatest of all time athletes. They're like a locomotive based training system, functional patterns, WEC method. Uh, we got into PRI. We got into all these like fringe functional biomechanic informed training systems. And I didn't realize it, but there was this really strong niche of people who were really interested in it. And so this, uh, this conversation started growing. We started to get some more guests on all these people that we, that Will and I were like speculating about and talking about. Eventually they became guests on our podcast. And I had this, like, I remember talking to David Weck on the phone <laughs> the inventor of the BOSU ball. And I'm like jumping around. I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm talking to this guy right now. What the hell? This is crazy. You know, it's like one of these moments where it's like, it's the dude on TV. I'm talking to the dude on TV or whatever it happens to be. You get the starstruck moment. Like, I can't believe this is happening. So, <laughs> you know, putting together the podcast has been one of the most fun, uh, educational experiences for me in a, in a multitude of ways. I mean, it's also, I think how you and I became connected. I literally started a Twitter account just so that I could start talking about it and promoting the show. And you know, the people that I've met, the cool things that I've learned from our guests, like it's completely changed my life. Like how I train, how I eat, how I think the people who I'm like really close with, like all of it over the last like less than two years. I feel like I have a different body and a different mind. That's awesome. And an amazing new technology that seems to be a little bit misunderstood. And, and part of the reason why I began to make a podcast, because I realized at some point, oh, this is a little bit different. Like it's not, you know, I think when it first came about, it was perceived as an evolution of the radio show, right? Which is like kind of famous and powerful people in the entertainment industry putting on a show for others to listen to and maybe to promote whatever it is that the industry was, you know, paying to promote. Now it's, it's this facilitating a connection and deep conversations between people who are curious and interested and anyone who can listen feel is, is like free to listen and learn along the way. But it's almost more for the value is almost more for us, the ones participating in it than, than the people listening, which is very different from a radio show. It's, it's like this whole new technology. And now that uh, everyone is very used to remote videos, it's like second nature um, from the past, you know, few years where these things became a part of everybody's life, it, it's really evolved to this next level where it, it's this way to facilitate. It's almost a mind gym in a way where I can go train mm. 
my body and you know go through a million different practices and, and something that I'm, I'm another that's something I'm curious to talk to you about is how you perceive all these practices having having learned about them all but then th- this is such a great way to sort of grow and nourish and train the mind through dialogue and, and and through challenging ideas and asking questions and I always come away with these from like new thoughts being sparked and different questions that I'm ruminating on and it's been a powerful even though I've only done this four or five months it's been amazing for my mind Cool, man. What what have been some takeaways or, or what are, you know, like learning about some of these principles, how has it informed or changed your practice or your approach? A big one has been the ability or the perceived ability to just create things in general. So speaking to a lot of, a lot of people who I admire or who are in a similar place as me, it, it's, incredibly challenging to create something from scratch. It's just like, it's daunting, especially in the this modern era where like everyone's looking through their phones at, you know, potentially in your mind, like, oh, everyone's looking at it. Like in reality, not, you know, there's not that much attention being paid to it really. It's just like a split second as you're scrolling, but there's also this potential, like I could really impact somebody's life. And as I've, as I've engaged more with it and received feedback from it, people are really appreciating the value that the energy, the love that I'm putting into what I'm creating and hearing, getting that feedback has, has been amazing. So connecting with others who are further along down the path or in the same place here and like continue to be courageous, continue to create, continue to help change lives. That has been a really powerful motivator. And, and it's not just with the podcast. It's kind of like with, has been a holistic approach to like everything in my mm. life. Like how, how can I create a little bit how can I create a little bit of a better routine in the morning? How can I create a little bit better communication in my relationship? It just sort of like spreads throughout. And that has been a really powerful sort of force in, in my life over the past few months. I, I think that's a good approach to have too, man. Like I think one thing that I've noticed is like my happiness is basically contingent on if I'm creating more than I'm consuming, right? If that balance of like consumption to creation gets out of whack at all, I feel I have like existential crises and I like hate humanity and just like, just start to loathe myself (laughs) essentially. So if you're, if you're in this, like, you know, I think, I think we're meant to be creative. I think we're meant to express this energy and, you know, we have this incredibly complex ability to pattern recognize and, and to, you know, like work with our hands and do all these things. I would have to agree, man. Like in terms of what you said about like the fact that the podcasts are almost more for us than for the audience. It's like, I loved kind of playing that balance a little bit. Cause there are things that Will and I would talk about that would not get any views at all. And I would always laugh. Cause it was like, man, like I thought that was one of our best conversations. We went, we went off the fucking rails. We're talking about like, you know, like theories of uh, etheric energy as purported by Nikola Tesla and like all this crazy, crazy far out there stuff. But then we talk about like, this is what the foot looks like and this is how it moves. And I was like, yeah, the foot, let's see the foot. (laughs) So, so the balance between like, all right, I want to build an audience. I want to like sort of cater what we're talking to, to what's relevant. It's, it's, it's a weird thing, right? Like there's an overlap between like, what's the most relevant thing to talk about that people should hear that, that will actually be beneficial to them. What is it that people want to hear? Cause those two things don't always line up. Right? a lot of people uh, get hung up on things that are, that they think are important, but are probably like maybe peripherally or contextually important or actually just completely irrelevant. And then what, what do we want to talk about? Like what's, what's interesting to us right now? What are we working on? What's uh, what's important to us. And I think that balance is, uh, that's that's almost like that's a fun wave to ride. It is. It really is because if yeah, if you were to focus on just one or the other, it, it kind of wouldn't wouldn't work as well. But the harmony between the two is really where the magic magic lies. Is where like I'm jazzed, I'm I'm energized, I'm I'm amped up to talk about whatever my curiosity is driving. But it gets too far into like my own thing. There's only a few people who are resonating with like the same wavelength that I'm on. But it but for them it's going to be deep versus like kind of going broad and like appealing to the, the masses. It's like, there's even, there's even like a trade-off within that trade-off where you've got like, yeah. it's like niche topic that like a few people are going to be like really into versus like, yeah, something more, more broad and applicable. But it, yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of cre- the essence of creativity at the, the end of the day is like making these creative choices. Even someone, I, I love thinking about like someone really famous and profound, like Van Gogh who never sold up 
single painting during his life. And then when he dies, mm. like we're still talking about him hundreds of years later. And like, I don't know. It's funny to think that there could be someone out there like that today. He's just like struggling and striving and pain and suffering. <laughs> it's just like, no one likes it. But then like, he's going to die. Our kids, kids you know? are going to be like, this dude's the shit. <laughs> yeah. It's wild to think about. Yeah. What resonates and what doesn't. And especially with social media where you get the immediate feedback or, you know, close to immediate feedback where like, you know, gets a bunch of views and likes or, or it doesn't. And it has, almost seems to have no correlation to like how much energy and effort you put into it. Well, dude, I had a surreal experience where I had uh, an Instagram reel go like super, super viral. And it was one that I was like, I was, I looked cracked out of my mind because it was like, oh fuck, it's like, like close to 1am. I need to make a piece of content because I was like doing this like consistency content. So my I'm like holding my eyes open. I, I'm not blinking. I'm like, all right, guys, I'm going to tell you about the thing. And it's this nasal breathing video where you, you basically you plug your nose and you bob your head and it clears your nose. It's, it's such a goofy video. It got six and a half million views. And I'm like, six and a half million people. I have a toque on that says uh, daddy on it. I'm like, <laughs> like, oh my God, of all... Six and a half million people are seeing me in this state right now. This is a, uh, this is a moment. <laughs> so it's, again, it's like, it, it honestly does feel up to chance in terms of what people will respond to. Like I, working in marketing, I try to discern what will perform well, what's relevant. And uh, I actually dissuade people from going too viral because oftentimes if you go viral, it's usually because you have something that is, super mass appeal, right? Like it's something that everyone can kind of relate to and everyone wants. But when you're trying to build an audience that resonates with you, you want to sort of polarize people and dissuade people who aren't going to resonate with your content, aren't going to engage with your content, aren't going to care about you. You want to dissuade them from following you and you want to dissuade them from engaging with your stuff because it's not for them, right? And so I, I even had this moment, I gained like 12,000 followers from it. I was like, fuck, no. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it was cool. It was awesome. But I had this moment where I was like, oh no, I just like attracted this swath of irrelevant people to start following me. And it's, it's funny. Cause like, I still have the same, like 300 people who are really holding it down in terms of the engagement and stuff. But I have like 18,000 followers and I'd say like, it's still the same core 300 people who are like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> that is epic and i'll link that reel down below so everyone everyone can see the uh exactly what we're describing <laughs> here and man that is, that is so funny yeah that's amazing and i guess one thing that's coming to mind this is a little bit random a bit of a pivot but since we were since you mentioned the foot i've i've been fascinated by feet in the foot, not in like a, a weird way. I know that gets like fetishized a lot, but not like that. Not like that. Don't take me the wrong way. But the foot as like a neglected aspect of our, of our physiology, of, of our body, it's incredibly intricate and advanced. It's like such an advanced, it's the most advanced part of our muscularity or body in, in a lot of ways, I feel like. And there's something like a hundred different bones and like all these different muscles. And, and as you embrace sort of shoe free training, even just something like a simple as a pistol squat um, or learning to do a pistol squat if you're not there yet, feeling the foot sort of balance and adjust and, and, and synchronize with the earth or the floor or, or the you know rocks that you're on, whatever you're on, you can feel it sort of ebb and flow. And it's such an amazing fluid dynamic feeling. I love like single foot training has been so much fun and just really being intentional and conscious and aware of the way the foot is working is such a magic uh, movement practice. Once you get into barefoot training and allow that foot to sort of move and ebb and flow in the way that it's meant to do. I think the foot is a sensory organ, man. Like if you think about how many nerve endings are on it and how much, like you'll, you'll get a signal on your foot and it informs an entire part of your chain to, to like basically self-organize to deal with like some sort of change in the structure of the ground underneath your foot. Like it's like, it's going to prepare you to balance in a particular way. So it literally is informing your entire structure with the nerve inputs that you're getting from below your foot. You lose that when you're wearing shoes, right? Like that's the other part. It's like, fuck, we're like basically uh, atrophying a sensory organ every time we put on socks and shoes. 
Wow. Yeah, that just blew my mind. I mean, that it, so a picture, an image that comes to mind was, I'm sure you're familiar with with Katie Bowman. She wrote uh, Nutritious Movement, and she she posted this this image online of someone typing with duct tape around their hands. Like this is what it's like to wear <laughs> to wear to wear shoes when you're working out. It's like, oh yeah, that that's true, isn't it? And and yeah, this sensory organ. I'm just thinking of balance in general. This entire proprioceptive network we have, like kind of in every nerve ending. I'm I'm imagining this network from like our our all our fingers, like to our elbows, our knees, like all responding to this, to the sensory input from our foot on the surface, just keeping the body coordinated. It's, that really is an amazing, amazing way to think about it. I mean, that's why we have like six episodes on just talking about the foot and like what it does. during. <laughs> like we've talked a lot about feet, man. Like, <laughs> I mean, a lot. <laughs> One of the things though, you know, I will say people like people will hear a podcast like this and they'll go, all right, man, I'm going to go do like wiggle my toes and sand. I'm going to go do like foot training, right? They do the calf raises and they do like little carpet squeezes and all this stuff. But I think one of the things that I've learned recently in the last couple of months is that you can't train your foot separate from the rest of your body. Like you kind of have to put it in context of like what you, what the rest of your system would be doing during locomotion or during a jump or during like doing a particular task. If you're just trying to isolate your foot, doing these like little toe curls, like you're grabbing a towel with your toes for reps and stuff like that'll have, that's good for awareness and maybe like an interoception of like the contractions and the grabbing motions of your toes and stuff. And like, you can maybe start to feel some of the fascia, in your, in your foot start to integrate. But if you're not say, um, you know, like if you pull your hips behind you and you kind of pivot into like, almost like the way that uh, a go to would go to person would do a drop in, for example, and then you drive into your foot and you, you like almost create like this suction sensation into your dome while you're, while you're also activating that entire part of your, your chain, your lateral calf, your hamstring, your glute firing that little bit of a, a wiggle in your thoracic spine as you're, as you're sinking into it, you feel that whole kinetic chain go. Then when you're, then when you bounce in that position, now it's like you you're connecting that fascial chain from your foot all the way up the, the entire chain, all the way up, up the system. And so if you're just like, you're doing foot strength exercises, but you're not addressing how it connects to the rest of the chain, you're almost creating like an irrelevant strength or an irrelevant, um, development, I suppose, because it's not going to be related to how it interact because it's, because it's how like, this is, this is like a, a big mentality that we challenged in our podcast is this idea that when we train, we isolate body parts. And I know that you don't do that. I know that you're, you're moving around, you're doing all kinds of things. You got your martial arts, your soft acro, you got some cool uh, gymnastics stuff. You're climbing, you're running, you're doing all kinds of stuff and you're not doing the, you haven't separated your system into parts. Right. And so, you know, when people are like, oh, wow, the foot is so important. It's like, yeah, but in relation to what, like how, what, what is the foot important in relation to, I think is like a better question to kind of ask. And before you get all like, and I'm, I'm just saying this for the person who's listening to this. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go train my feet. It's like, well, think, think about how your foot, go listen to my podcast <laughs> and learn how the foot interacts with the rest of your fascial chain all the way up your system so that you know how to train it in a relevant way. I'm, I'm going to go binge listen to your, your six feet episodes after this. And, uh, <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And, it, and this dovetails beautifully into something that's been on my mind during this conversation now that we've dove a little bit deeper into this is, is having learned about all these different movement practices and, and ways to engage the body and train the body mind. How, how do you approach training? Cause I imagine on one hand, it might be a little bit overwhelming knowing, knowing all this, but on the other hand, maybe it's just kind of driven you to be more in touch, more in tune and, and, and giving you more variation to play with. Like it could, because it, it's, I think for the average person and, and for me included, there's so many different ways to train and we only have, you know, so much time in the day. So I guess the question ultimately is like, how do we make the most of this, you know? Mm. So I try to experiment a lot in terms of understanding, like, all right, if the first principle is that we want to have good standing posture, 
walking mechanics, running mechanics. And we want to be able to throw well. And my system, like if I'm throwing, then when I pull back, that means that the attribute of my pec fibers and my anterior deltoid, I'm simplifying as much as possible. That needs to have elastic recoil, right? So, so I need to have an attribute of stability and elastic snap because that's also in a sprint. When I, when I pump my arm back in a sprint, I'm relying on that elastic recoil, that viscoelastic property of my fascial system to bounce me back. So I can't lose that, which means I can't go and do my bench press. I can't indulge in overhead pressing movements that might stuff up my shoulders in that way and don't help me, don't allow for me to have that freedom of movement and that viscoelastic property, that, that, that sort of rebounding quality of my, of the fascia in that area. Cause you can, you know, like you can specialize in a bench press and you can basically train your Spider-Man suit of connective tissue to be like super rigid. And then you're like, all right, I'm, I'm great guys. This is great. But so that's, that's my first principle, right? So I, I like, I love strength training, but if I'm going to strength train, it's going to be in a way that's relevant to the way that my muscles fire in sequence during a locomotive pattern or a throwing pattern. So an example would be like on a cable machine, functional patterns has this amazing uh, piece of equipment called a parabar, which is this long bar, or I guess it's, they, they renamed it, it's an RG bar, but it has a split in the middle and it rotates. And so you attach it to a cable machine and you can rotate it and sort of have, you can, you can sort of take a step with it while rotating and you have this nice, piece of resistance and you can feel where parts of uh, tension are helping you integrate your system. And you can actually fire your musculature in the same sequence as if you were taking a, a step forward during a sprint, right? Instead of a kettlebell swing, I might do um, something that looks like, uh, you know, a go to drop in, um, but maybe a little more nuanced now because I know more about locomotion and I'll take a dumbbell and I'll, and I'll pump it back as if I'm, you know, sprinting. Right. And so I'll drop back and I'll pump it and then I'll switch arms and I'll go to the other leg. And so that's kind of what I do instead of a, you know, a two, two armed, two legged kettlebell swing is I'll swing. Then it's a lot of just being outside as much as I can when it's not a winter wasteland where I live. I'm like, I'm walking barefoot. I'm running up mountains. I'm, uh, you know, climbing up trees if I have the opportunity to. I'm trying to get as much natural stimulation as I can. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of natural movement stuff. I play with some sandbags. Um, more recently, I've been doing some stuff from a system called MoveMed, which is actually a neurological approach to training. It's training a bunch of different systems from like almost like an in to out perspective, and it's it's very it's very different and I don't know how to explain it. I'm not going to try, but I would go follow Nathan on Instagram, MoveMed, and check out some of his stuff. He has a lot of vision training. So, and he thinks about things that no, I've never heard anyone else talk about. And so there's a lot of fascination there and it integrates really well with a lot of the other biomechanic stuff because it's just learning how to relate to your own nervous system. So, you know, what you're saying about there's only so much time in, a, in, in the day. My approach to training in general, in the most simplified way, is I will film myself sprinting in slow motion. And then I will look at that slow motion video and I will look for biomechanical deficiencies and inefficiencies. Based on that information, I will select um, you know, different movements that I think could help me integrate my system better, could help me uh, gain more access to joints that need to articulate better, and I'll, I'll design programs and you know, go hard at a particular area to see if I can correct the dysfunctions that I see in my behavior and my posture. And so everything is pretty intentionally picked out. I'm not an expert in it necessarily, but I've learned enough that I can kind of have an intuitive sense of like, hey, this is what I'm seeing. I'm noticing that my, you know, like I lose integrity in my chain on my right foot when I'm you know, deep into a sprint, anything over 12 kilometers an hour, I'm like starting to get this like weird thing with my, with my hip and with my leg. And 
my shoulders doing this thing. So, all right, I'm going to work on that. I'm going to have like a lot of awareness. I'm going to drill this pattern. I'm going to put resistance here. I'm going to, you know, practice that, that springiness. I'm going to do a lot of bounce. And then I just do some stuff for fun. I'll throw in some pull-ups and I'll jump on tall boxes. Cause I like to feel like super Mario. <laughs> that is awesome. What an amazing presentation of your training method. It really gets me excited to one, go out and train, climb some trees, go climb up some mountains, do some sprinting, and also look in the move med. That sounds really fascinating. I I was, I was contemplating the other day about how I feel like the most, so the most popular kind of training method, there's like, what are the default options we've got? I think on one hand, it's like going out and running. I think that's probably the, maybe the most popular, uh, maybe neck and neck with bodybuilding, right? Those are the two approaches. Those are like the two mainstream approaches. And then you've got like yoga, cycling, a lot of these other things. And, and it does seem like a lot of these sort of end in, or at least have high risk and in injury down, down the line, especially if you're not trained in like jogging, that's, I feel like that's a pretty advanced movement practice, especially if you've got some extra weight on your bones to just like go out the door and just start pounding the pavement. Like that's almost always going to end in injury and then bodybuilding. A lot of people do that because they want to look more sexually attractive. I think ultimately, right. They want a more a body that appeals more to the mass perception of like what a, an aesthetic body would look like. So they go and they'll isolate individual muscles, do like specific lifts to try and get them bigger. And like, even that can, can definitely end in some injuries um, as well, because it's not integrating the whole body as, as a, as an integrated system. You're looking at almost movement mastery instead of bodybuilding movement mastery, where we're going to take these, mm. these like foundational movements that our, limbs are like here to do and and we're just gonna like make allow them to do what they're there to do and just try and like master it over time which i think is a fascinating fascinating approach and, and energizing when i think about it it's like oh that does seem that seems right that seems good well and i think you will take care of a lot of the other problems that you mentioned like you won't get injured when you run if you fix your mechanics for locomotion you will look pretty good if you have good mechanics and you can express those mechanics naturally and frequently. Um, you won't be over muscled necessarily, but man, you could, you could definitely build muscle using some of these resistance training approaches that only orient around, uh, you know, locomotive or throwing relevant patterns. Like, I really believe that you're not going to look like a bodybuilder necessarily, but fuck like fix your mechanics and then go sprint. Like the amount of HGH that you're going to be pumping through your system and, and like, how like you look at the the physique of a sprinter i actually had a guy in my dms and we were like analyzing their physiques they have massive rear delts because of how much they pump their arms back their obliques and their abs are so so incredibly defined because of how much force like rotational and uh and lateral force that they have to withstand their hamstrings their calves everything super super developed right like you'll, you'll be able to build a really good looking physique. If you look at the first principles of how a human body is first of all, supposed to look in the first place and then orient yourself around trying to optimize for that. And then, you know, if you want to throw in like a couple of vanity or for fun things, you know, like you want to learn how to handstand, that's not going to kill you. You're, you want to, you know, bust out a couple of push ups and get a bit of a chest pump, like also not going to kill you. Just make sure you don't lose that springiness. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the ultimately just trying to make, make this sort of thing fun and engaging and, and playful over time. Is that a part of your, your practice? Just like integrating that energy of, of play and of, of mastery or is, is it sort of, cause it, I, I think on, on one part of me, as, as I hear you, it almost sounds like um, somewhat of a, almost a mechanical or a repetitious process where it seems potentially boring or dull where it's like, kind of the same thing over and over again, trying to iterate film and, and make it uh, more optimized. But it, I doubt it's like that really it, it, in the flow. I mean, when you're, when you're like, look, like for me, I like solving problems, right? Like it's kind of like a, a kinesthetic Sudoku, right? And I'm looking at it. It's like, oh, like I got this, you know, you're looking at the whole chain and you're like, it's like, it's like a fun problem solving exercise. And then you get to go do the work. Now I do have two sides of it, right? I do this really rigid what you could call boring mechanical work so that my body can self-organize when I'm going out and doing things that are fun, like climbing mountains, like 
you know, I, I want to learn how to shuffle. <laughs> Will on the, our last podcast said, yeah, I'm learning to shuffle. It's really great. I'm like, dude, I want to, I want to dance like that. You're not going to dance better than me. <laughs> so like, but then, you know, my body will self-organize better if it has good biomechanics. So I, I will do a bunch of boring work if that means that I don't have to think about it when I'm out doing fun things with my body. I don't have to worry about putting my back out because I'm having sex with my girlfriend like I used to when I was powerlifting, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, I, think, I think it's basically, you, know, you do some boring work so that you can trust your body enough when you're doing the fun stuff. And how is this? I have this conception perception that I've formed over time where the, the body and mind are one and, and that shouldn't be like too mind blowing for folks. But I think the way that sort of plays out is when we learn to move in new ways or as we engage in movement practice, it shapes our mind in a, in a, in a different way. So like people who are primarily sprinters are going to have a different mental structure, a different noetic architecture than someone who does long distance running. I think that's often overlooked or not observed because you can't actually, it's, mm. it's rare for someone to inhabit both, for someone to like be a sprinter and then like go be a long distance runner. How has, how has this sort of training or this, this transformation in your movement journey shaped your mind, shaped the way that you think about things? Has it, has it played a role there? So this is interesting that you say that. My brother sent me a study like ages ago about how different practices physically affected different areas of cognitive performance. So lifters in general have better problem solving or like task solving capacities while distance runners have better, I think, working memories. So it's like right down to a, like a, co like a cognitive function level, your tasks that you choose to do and the way that you engage in your physical practice are going to inform your cognitive performance. So the body and mind are definitely one. We're on the same page there. In terms of how it's uh, it's affected me mentally, there's a couple of things. One is that I don't feel like I have to go hard all the time just to feel like I'm okay. Mm. Like I remember when I was crossfitting and powerlifting, like it was almost like I was putting 400 pounds on a barbell on my back just so that I could feel grounded. And like, I don't feel that way anymore. I feel more connected to my nature. And so I don't have to force myself to exert myself in extreme ways in order to feel less anxious. I also feel like I have a broader view of things because when I was coming from a lifting perspective, if you think about the nature of the movement itself, it's very linear. It's coming from a very boxed in perspective of the way that the world works and the way that human human movement is it's all levers and hinges it's you push pull squat lunge and hinge that's the human body it's like well actually the way the human body behaves in nature is pretty multi-dimensional and so there was a really big expansion of there are so many variables that i don't know how to account for and that's kind of liberating in a lot of ways uh the need for control in my life uh, I still have really efficient systems for my work and my business and my habits, but in general, um, rather than trying to control everything, I try to let nature control me more. And so there's like this sort of reverse relationship that I have where I'm trying more and more to fall in line with my natural biology, my, my body's impulses. I'm not trying to dominate myself as much as harmonize with the nature of what I'm supposed to be. So there's, it's a very intangible thing to try and consider how has your mind changed over, you know, close to two years of, of training and looking at the body in a different way. But I think those are, those are some really, really big things. I still have hangups about how I look. I think, you know, like coming from a background where I was really fat and then like my appearance was so important, I still have hangups about it. Um, but less so, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't attach my personal value to my external appearance as much, right? And I really try not to do that because I am on social media a lot for my job. I do exist on the internet. I'm constantly portraying and projecting this image of myself out to the world. So if I get too hung up on that as my identity, then it can really fuck me up. Like you can really, really get screwed up thinking about that. So I, you know, I kind of identify more as the observing consciousness of this organic being that is trying more and more to align itself 
to its nature, to the Tao, whatever you want to call it, to submit to biological law and to express whatever it is that I'm meant to express in this lifetime. So there's, there's a, a, big, a big element of release and humility, I guess, and less trying to dominate myself and my environment. Man, that was a beautiful riff. Thanks, man. Thanks for sharing that. That was awesome. <laughs> wow. And at the beginning of, of our conversation, before we started recording, we, we were talking about how you live near Banff in Canada, where it's negative mm. 26 degrees currently. And I've never been up in that area, but I've heard it's a very beautiful landscape. Have you, is that where you grew up or did you move there recently? And, and what's, the, what's it like up there? So I was born in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And kind of moved all over the place when I was growing up. And um, Banff was a place that I kind of like made as a spur of the moment decision. I had been trying to actually, I'm being totally transparent. I was recovering from a drug addiction at the time. I had been like abusing psychedelics, which is a funny thing to say that you have an addiction to, but I, I was like fully addicted to psychedelic drugs because of the profound insights that I thought I was having on them. And it really, you know, disoriented and disorganized my mind. And so I was trying to recover from that. Training was a big part of that recovery, but the environment that I was in wasn't really conducive to my healing. And so I had a friend that had moved out there and was sending me all these pictures of the mountains. And they're like, I think you would love it here. Everyone's so happy out here. So I was like, I got nothing going on for me where I'm living right now. And I'm trying to heal and I'm trying to be in a, a grounded place. What's more grounded than a fucking mountain? <laughs> so I packed up all my shit and sold like 99% of my stuff. I basically just had like a backpack with some clothes and a few books. And I moved, I hopped on a uh, plane and then a bus to Banff. And uh, fuck, I just, I loved it, man. Like it was a life-changing experience seeing, seeing like the beauty of the mountains being in a national park where the fauna kind of coexist with like, there's very particular laws that protect the wildlife there. So you're very integrated with the wildlife. And uh, yeah, it was just a really special experience for me. And it's funny because I've moved out of the area quite a few times, but I always end up coming back because it's the thing that's felt closest to home for me. As I was growing up, I moved almost like every year or so. So nothing ever really felt like a stable sense of home. And the mountains have always felt like the closest thing to home to me in my adult life. And so, you know, it's, it's beautiful here. Uh, there's a lot of Australians who come for work visas because they want to come have a, a ski season, what have you. And it's a, it's a great party town if you're into that. And an amazing, amazing outdoor activity scene. So like 10 out of 10 would recommend visiting Banff in either the summer or the winter, whichever one's your jam. It's like, it's such a magical place. And interestingly enough, I remember going to, uh, my friend took me to a powwow where all the indigenous nations met. And it was the first time they let non-indigenous people come and attend this as part of like a, a, a you know, sort of a progressive movement that they were doing with their communities. And so we were there and I remember this indigenous person said, you know, in Banff, people weren't allowed to live here. It was considered too spiritually powerful a place and people would come for pilgrimages where they would come and learn a lesson from the land. And when they had learned the lesson, the land would kick them out and they would have to go home. And so I find it really interesting because now it's this really transient place. People will come in for a holiday working visa and people kind of use it as their gap year place because it's a tourist town. People come in and out and it's very rare to find someone who lives in Banff their entire life. Um, and I've felt, I've felt more than once when I've been living in Banff, when I've like left, that I've been like kicked out from living there. And that's almost why I live in Canmore now. I live in the town, you know, uh, about 20 minutes away. But I got kicked out of Banff. The spirit of Banff kicked me out pretty hard. And it's like, you learned your lesson here. You got to move on. So I found that really interesting too. That's just like a little side quest. Awesome. And I've really appreciated you sharing that, that spirit of Banff and, and the spirit of Anthony with us here today, everyone listening and, and, and myself, I really enjoyed this conversation. It was, it was amazing. Do you have any sort of conclusion that you'd like to, to share with, with anyone listening? Not really, man. I think just, you know, if, if people, people are seeking truth, I think that's like a pretty 
pretty big one. Like that's, that's a good first principle. And, you know, take, take all these conversations with a grain of salt. And also if people listen to my podcast, because they listen to this podcast, look into, don't, don't take anything at face value. Cause this stuff goes so deep and there is definitely misinformation on our podcast, or at least information that becomes less relevant, the deeper you get into it. So, um, listen, but don't take everything at face value, dig deeper into the things that fascinate you. And, um, and challenge the things that we say as well, because like we are going out on a limb and we're trying to innovate beyond the mainstream ideas about how the body moves. So yeah, dude, thank you so much for having this conversation. Hey there, do you have, do you have like another five minutes? There was one thing that I actually really wanted to talk to you about. Absolutely. I'm down. Yeah. So I know you have a lot of experience with prolonged fasting, right? You, you do, um, pretty regular prolonged fasts. And I, I just did a 48 hour one where the first 36 hours were completely dry. And I'm, I think looking at the time, I'm about 16 hours into another dry fast right now. And I'm going to go same thing. I'm kind of doing like a rolling 48 hour, you know, do 48 hours, have a small meal, do another 48 hours. Hmm. And I'm going to roll that three times basically, and then start eating normally again. But do you have any experience with dry fasting? Do you have, um, and like what inspired you to fast in the first place? And like, What's, what's your, what's your general philosophy around it, man? Deep question. It might, be, I'll keep it under five minutes. No, it, it's a, uh, yeah, it's been such a big, big part of my life these past three years. My, what got me into it was December of 2020. I came across a, an alpha strain of coronavirus and I lost my mm. sense of taste and smell. That was the only symptom I suffered, but it was annoying. I wanted to be able to taste and smell my food again. And a voice came to me and said to fast for three days. So that's what I did. And at the end of an 80 hour fast, which was my first time fasting that long, I ate some food and was amazed to find that I could, I could taste it. It was awesome. So then I thought, wow, this is fascinating. I'm going to look more into this. Surprisingly, not much is out there on the topic. I've read around a dozen books about multi-day fasting and fasting in general at, at this point, but as you might imagine, there's not much science behind it for, for a lot of reasons, right? It's a free, very powerful therapy. If you look at the True North Health Center, I've, I've recorded a few podcasts with um, fasting experts like Steve Hendricks wrote a book called The Oldest Cure in the World, which dives deep into the history of fasting as a medical modality, which is absolutely fascinating because, you know, for a long time, fasting was like an evolutionary just part of life, right? There was just no food. So they'd go months without eating and some hunter-gatherer tribes still do that. But now... It's, it's something that very few people do and maybe mostly in the context of religion. And that's where I find the biggest sort of mind-blowing aspect of this. And the why, reason why I love it so much is because I'm not a religious man as in I don't practice religion, but I do find that there's more to life than just like you live, you die. Like there's obviously more mm. to it than that. And when I fast for the reason why I fast for like three to five days is, is because in that three to five day period, I find a real strong connection with my daemon, with my inner wisdom, with my with the clarity, with the voice in my head. And it's, it's incredible. And all the noise drops away and I get this really strong signal that is just not a part of my life on, on a regular basis. So that's the reason why I started and my primary motivation. I did my first dry fast uh, for my winter fast this year. I started dry just to see how long I would go at the urging of a, a mentor, Rob Hanna, who was also a, a previous guest on this podcast. And um, I went like a day and a half and then I just got this like kind of irritable, got a headache. I was like, wait, drink some water and just kept drinking water for the next four days. So um, I found that the dry fast did accelerate my fast into you know deeper the deeper experience. And um, supposedly it's something like one day dry has like, is equivalent to like four days, you know, water only or something like that. But mm. talk about lack of research, like dry fasting, <laughs> no research. dry fasting is just like, you're winging it, man. But yeah, overall love fasting and, um, yeah, I hope, I hope that uh, answers <laughs> answers your question, dude. One hundred percent. Yeah. Well, I, I love I love hearing the uh, that that connection to what you called the daemon, that inner wisdom thing. That's something that I really tap into myself, man. I, I I had the thought that it was like maybe my brain is trying to be so efficient that it's just not wasting anything with frivolous thoughts, and it's mm -hmm. only cutting to the core of like what's wise and pertinent. And that was my thought was like, maybe it's just, maybe it's just that. 
But I also think there is something to be said for not like overindulging in exogenous stimulation from whether that's food or media or anything else. Like I can't, I find like when I'm two or more days into a fast, I can't watch anything on my phone. Like I just like, it's like, it's bright. It's shiny. Like I can't have it around me. Like it's, it's too much exogenous stimulation. And, uh, and there's, there's more of a connection to the inner world. Similar to psychedelics in that way where mm. like it is a very psychedelic state, um, almost more so than, you know, a low dose of, of psychedelics. I don't, I know you've, you've done both. So maybe you can, maybe you see, feel some corollaries. <laughs> yeah. It's... Well, I, I know that, um, when you fast for a while, you also start producing BDNF, which I think is brain derived neurotropic growth factor. Yeah. So it stimulates, you know, the, the growth of new brain cells as well while you're in this fasted state. And so in that sense, I would say, you know, like when you do a psychedelic like mushrooms or LSD, sometimes there's more a free flowing sort of associative state of consciousness. And in that sense, like I was laughing cause I was, uh, I was close to the 48 hour mark and I was just kind of like, I had an instrumental beat playing in the background and I just started rapping and I laughed. I was like, fasting makes me able to rap. This is crazy. <laughs> I was rhyming. I wasn't missing a beat. I was like out of my head about it. I wasn't second guessing. There was no hesitation. I was like, dude, that's crazy. And that's, that was uh, you know, I was a musician for quite a while, right? Like I, I released a couple of albums. I used to perform. That was like my, my thing for a long time. One of the reasons I got hooked on psychedelics was this free associative really sense of ultra creativity without inhibition. And, uh, and so I think fasting gives me a pretty, close approximation to that state without having to blast my brain with exogenous chemicals. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. And I think we're, we like, because there's not much science on it, we can, we can use these like science terms to describe it, but I think there's a lot going on at a deep level sort of with like the way things are upregulated and, and yeah, it's, man, it's uh, something I, I plan to invest more sort of creativity around to try and share, but I'm still learning it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one for a lot of reasons, but it's it's been such a profound aspect of the my life the past few years where I'm just like, this, there's something, there's a lot here that I want to share more about, share more around and um, just try and spread the good word because it's it's good medicine. I think the, uh, the workaround for that trickiness that you're talking about is just to uh, be relentlessly curious about your own experience and then share from your own perspective and to be really transparent about the fact mm. that this is my this is my own journey and my own perspective and my own research, do your own, right? And because, you know, fasting can be one of these things that's like, it's triggering for people with eating disorders. It's potentially really dangerous for people who don't know what they're doing. They're like, I'm just going to stop eating, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. But but if you come at it with like, hey, this is, you know, this is something that has that I've experienced that you should do your own research before you dive into and you, you know, you just share from the heart in that, in that perspective, you know, whether that is something that you've read about or something that you've experienced personally. I mean, I think of like uh, Cole Robinson, the snake diet guy who like pioneered prolonged fasting for a lot of people. And he's just like yelling at a camera, like I didn't fucking eat or drink for seven fucking days. You fat fucks. You think you're going to die without food and water? <laughs> And, and he'll, he'll do all these different fasting protocols just to yell at fat people on YouTube later. And it's very genuine. That's amazing. I got to look this guy up. Yeah. Cole Robinson, the snake diet guy. He's the, he's the king of fasting in my eyes. He's put out more information about it than I think any other human being on the planet. Dang. I don't know how I didn't hear him. Every, this is the crazy Because he's like, so he's so shadow banned on YouTube. So I'll, uh, I can send you some links to his channel. This has got some amazing stuff. Please do. <laughs> but anyways, dude, I don't want to be selfish with your time either. This was a really, really good conversation. Thanks again for having me on, man. Absolutely. Anthony Manuel, thank you very much for coming on. 